Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. The Rookie is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie. By the time the position meeting ended, Quentin felt thoroughly annoyed. He had several days of busy work lined up, wrote memorization of defensive players and schemes in addition to his offensive studies. And the real annoyance was that none of it really mattered. When he took the field, that's when all this garbage would fade away, once Hocourse saw what he could do. After the position meeting, Quentin followed Pine and Yitzhak to the dining deck. He had an uneasy feeling he couldn't quite explain. He'd never done team functions with the Raiders. He'd always done his own thing. Here, he gathered, he was expected to dine with the team. The brightly lit room held over 20 tables, each surrounded by a variety of chairs designed for the different body types of humans, Sklorno, Quith Warrior, and Quith Leader. Unlike the corporate offices, there were none of the six-foot-long, table-like chairs made for the key. Oh, man, we have to eat with the sub... I mean, uh, the other races? Pine stared at him. What? You can play a game with them, but you can't eat with them? You have to have the different races to win the game, Quentin said. But that doesn't mean you have to eat with them for high one's sake. It's a league rule, Yitzhak said. All species must use the same dining facilities. Remember the Kretorakians' whole point of this league is to create a sense of ambassadorship amongst the races. Uh, are the key an exception or something? Quentin didn't see any of the monstrous creatures in the dining hall. Yitzhak shuddered before he answered. Uh, Their eating habits are a little uh, messy compared to the other races. They eat alone. What do you mean, messy? They butcher their food at the table, Pine said. They eat it raw. Quentin looked at both men. You're kidding me, right? They shook their heads. It's horrific, Yitzhak said. They kill the animal right there on the table. The table is even designed to catch all the blood so they can drink that, too. That's disgusting. That's not the worst of it. That's just the ones from the key empire planets. The ones that come from key rebel establishment planets. They don't even bother to kill the animal before they start eating. Quentin stared dumbly. You mean they eat it live? Yitzhak nodded. I one, Quentin said. They are demons. Oh, take your morality invented, Barnes. They're not demons. They're different from humans, that's all. Meals are a major ritual for the key. It's part of their culture, how they bond and crap like that. But to eat a live animal? Only a mongrel race could do that. Yitzhak laughed. Well, then I guess Pine here is a mongrel. Pine smiled, but Quentin just stared dumbfounded at the evil surrounding him. You've broken bread with creatures that eat their food alive? Pine simply nodded. Quentin felt his stomach churning at the thought and suddenly found Pine's blue skin more repulsive than ever. What are you, blue boy? Some kind of Satanist? And there it is, Pine said with a knowing nod. See, you are just like Warburg, just another purist racist. I'm a leader, Barnes. 
He don't really accept you until you eat with them, until you fight and bleed with them. I'd do whatever it takes to make this team play as a whole. That's something you'll either figure out and succeed or won't figure out and you'll be gone. Quentin turned to Yitzhak. And I suppose you've eaten living flesh too? Yitzhak shuddered. I couldn't quite bring myself to do that, but I managed to sit through the whole thing and drank some blood. You've got to see it to believe it. It's worse than any horror holo you've ever seen. Quentin shook his head, then turned and walked away. Position meetings were over, and he didn't have to spend any more time with these two barbarians. He spotted Warburg, sitting alone, a huge tray of food in front of him. Quentin, Warburg called out. Come, let us break bread. Quentin walked up to the table and stared at the food. With all the activity, he hadn't eaten and suddenly realized that he was famished. Where's the chow? Warburg stuffed some potatoes into his mouth as he gestured to the back wall. A glass-enclosed counter ran the entire length, all 50 feet of it. Under the glass sat every kind of food Quentin could imagine. The counter was divided into sections, each about two feet in length. Above each section glowed a holographic symbol of a planet or system. Quentin didn't recognize half the symbols, but the purest nation infinity symbol glowed a warm welcome. He grabbed a tray from an overhead shelf and started loading up. The mint mashed potatoes he'd seen Warburg eating. Chicken breasts smothered in curry paste. Pita bread and mason gravy. The multicolored broccoli that only grew on the planet Stuart. And a thick piece of chocolate cake. Just to his right was the flag of the Planetary Union. Those dishes looked somewhat familiar, but were all things he'd never before tried. One of the dishes seemed to be some kind of halved shell, with a raw, glistening, grayish mass sitting inside. Raw food. Typical blasphemy of non-nation races. Quentin didn't exactly say his 20 praise high ones each night, but that didn't mean he was so sinful he'd eat raw food. Just to his left was the glowing five-star circle of the Quith Concordia. His lip wrinkled involuntarily in disgust at the brownish selections many of which had more spindly legs than any insect he'd ever seen. Quentin turned away from the strange foods and walked back to the table, rejoicing in the smells that drifted up from his plate. Did you see that disgusting garbage the quith eat? Warburg asked as Quentin sat. Yeah, what is that crap? Bugs? Warburg shrugged. I don't know and I don't care to know. Haiwa knows it's something unblessed and blasphemous. We'll see what they eat when they're burning in hell. Quentin cut a big piece of chicken breast and bit into it. His eyes closed in pleasure at the taste. Food's gotten pretty good since Greedock picked you up, Warburg said with a smile. It wasn't good before? Warburg shrugged. It wasn't that bad. The cooks would try to make nation dishes out of whatever planetary union or League of Planets crap they had laying around. Ever since they signed you, though, they've been bringing in the real deal from nation freighters or whatever. Seems like Greedock and Hokor want to make you right at home. Quentin shoveled in some potatoes, marveling at the succulent taste. Glad they feel that way. I haven't had decent food since I got to the Combine. I hope they start you right away, Warburg said. I can't stand that shucking blue boy pine. Quentin nodded. You know he told me he's eaten raw flesh with the key? What do you mean, eaten? That's past tense. He does it every week. Low one take him. Look at him now. 
Warburg gestured to the far end of the hall. Most of the tables held members of only one race, either human, quith, or sclorno. But Pine sat at a table of quith warriors, laughing, smiling, and stuffing some limp, brown, multi-legged creature into his mouth. I hope he likes the heat, considering where the High One will place him on Judgment Day, Warburg said. I mean, it's one thing to have to talk to these demons. That's just the nature of the game. But to sit down with them, to eat with them, and eat their barbaric food, it's unforgivable. Quentin nodded and turned back to his plate. The sight of Pine chewing that brown thing had killed his appetite, but he kept eating anyway. Tomorrow was the first practice, and he'd need all of his strength if he was going to win the starting quarterback slot. Chapter 5. Practice As instructed, his room lights flickered on at 6 a.m., one hour before the position meeting. His room filled with the loud sounds of the band Trench Warfare. He stretched as he listened to the seductive but strong vocals of Trench's lead singer, Somalia Midori. Their music was banned back on McCovey, but Quentin managed to get his hands on every song they had ever recorded. As a kid, he didn't know it was even possible to circumvent the laws of the holy men. The more games he won, however, the easier it became to obtain contraband items like erotic pictures, recorded GFL broadcasts, or out-of-system books and music. When he'd entered his sparse room for the first time the night before, he'd asked the computer if it could play any trench warfare for his wake-up call. The shocking answer? The computer had access to not only every trench album, but most of the band's live performances from the last five years. He could watch Holo or just listen to audio. He'd had time for one Holo before going to bed and had watched in amazement at the four musicians performing on stage to a jumping, gyrating crowd of humans. He'd been shocked to see that Somalia bore the blue skin of a Satirly Six native. He thought she was beautiful, but just for a second, then he asked the computer for sound only. Discovering an endless library of music had been a surprise pleasure, but nothing compared to the well-nigh religious experience that came when he asked the computer if there were any archived GFL games. What team and what year? The computer had asked. How far back do the games go? To the beginning. What? The very first GFL games? To the beginning of football. What do you mean, to the beginning of football? What's the oldest game you've got? Fordham College, Earth, versus Waynesburg College, Earth, 1939. But, but, that, that's 700 years ago. 743 years ago, the computer corrected. Would you like to see? Yes! Quentin turned to the holo tank. A picture flashed in the tank, but it looked very strange. He could make out football players, but they were tiny and far away, without color, and they were... They're flat, like a printed picture. It looks broken. What's wrong with it? This was called television, a two-dimensional electronic representation of actual events. Do you have more of these television broadcasts? Galactic Free Archive has every game ever broadcast via television, radio, and holocast. 
Quentin watched a play in which the quarterback took the snap, turned almost 360 degrees, and followed a wall of blockers into a wall of defenders. His heart raced. To think he was watching the beginnings of his sport, a game played almost 750 years ago. He could watch any game ever recorded, all of the Toe Pirates games, even games from the archaic NFL. One of those games played now in his holo tank between teams called the Kansas City Chiefs and the Chicago Bears. He'd instructed the computer to wake him with not only music, but also a random football broadcast at least 500 years old or older. As the music's heavy beat pounded through his small quarters, he dragged himself out of the bed and started stretching. He had plans today. He'd show them all just what kind of a player he was. He walked through the ship's empty corridors, descended to field level, and entered the central locker room. A circular area. The central locker room was built around a holoboard. Four doors lined the circular room. A small icon hung on each door. A human, a key, a sclorno, and a quith warrior. A huge, realistic mural dominated the other side of the circular room. Quentin stared at the brightly colored, six-tentacled monster rising up from the depths in a spray of deep red water. Rows of long, backward-curving teeth lined a cavernous mouth. One large eye glowed an eerie green. He nodded to the picture. He entered the human door and found his own space. Barnes, number 10, it read above the locker. Get used to that number, Galaxy. You're going to be hearing it a lot. He opened the locker. The first thing he took out was his practice jersey. He stared at the number 10 on the chest. He felt the texture of the black Kevlar fabric. This was only a practice jersey, yet it was of a far higher quality than anything he'd worn in the PNFL. He set the jersey flat on the ground. He smiled as he pulled out a Cool Products body control suit designed to regulate his temperature on the field. Coolant fluid constantly circulated through the microtubules in the suit's thin, rubbery fabric. He slid into the suit, which automatically adjusted itself to conform perfectly to his body. Next, he pulled out his arm and shoulder armor, Rawlings' null-contact inertia-dampening system, state-of-the-art. Supposedly, the armor could stop a bullet, absorbing the velocity into the hard shell instead of transmitting it to the wearer. He slid them on. Like the cool suit, the armor's microsensor circuits automatically adjusted for a tailored fit. The armor was thinner on his left arm, his throwing arm, to allow maximum flexibility. Next came the matching lower torso armor, which would protect his ribs, stomach, kidneys, and lower back. He wrapped it around his waist. The microsensors contracted and expanded, locking it in precisely with the shoulder armor. Groin and leg armor were more of the same. The knee joints were made of an interstellar caliber alloy, designed to allow normal flexibility but locking out any possible hyperextension. He slid his feet into the armored boots, which locked in perfectly with the leg armor. With all this protection, it seemed a wonder that any being got hurt at all. And yet they did get hurt. Frequently. And badly. Football players were just too big, too strong, too fast, and too violent. Quentin wondered what kind of injuries might occur were it not for this high-tech armor. 
He moved around, feeling the armor move with him, a perfect fit that didn't seem to hinder his range of motion. He pulled on the jersey, then grabbed his helmet. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The shiny black Riddell helmet was lighter than anything he'd used before, but probably ten times stronger than what he'd worn on McCovey. A patch of bright orange decorated the front of the helmet, from temple to temple. Six white stripes stretched out from the orange patch, like the arms of a stylized sunrise. There were three white stripes on each side, one curving above the ear hole, one halfway up the curving side, and one higher up on each side of the helmet's center. The stripes represented the six tentacles of the quith creature for which the krakens were named. A recessed button sat under the right ear hole. Quentin pushed it. A holographic test pattern hovered just in front of the face mask. Once again, state of the art. He had tried to talk Stedmar into springing for the in-helmet holo display, but Stedmar balked at the half-million credit price tag. The display would let a quarterback see the playbook, live statistics, and the coach in case coaches use hand signals, lip-reading, or some other secretive play-calling method. He pushed the button again, and the test pattern disappeared. Quentin headed for the sim room, cleats clacking against the metal floor. The lights blinked on as he walked in. As he had suspected, the place was empty. Everyone else was still sleeping. Ship, Quentin called as he walked to the center of the room. Do you have a sim for the Kraken's practice field? The dome flickered briefly. Then Quentin found himself in a dead-on simulation of the practice field. Ship, give me the first-string defense for the Grontak Hydras. The semi-translucent players appeared out of nowhere, a combination of human and other species, all dressed in the red and yellow checkerboard Hydra jerseys. Ship, call out the names of each defensive player before each play. Uh, Give me X-right formation, double streak left, Y-right. The Krakens players materialized. The key linemen scurried up to the line and lowered themselves for the snap. The computer started calling out the names of the defense as Quentin approached the line. 
He would practice and study at the same time and show them all just what the purest nation had to offer. The 7 a.m. position meeting didn't take more than 10 minutes, just enough time for Hokor to outline the day's practice. They would focus on route passing, no offensive line and no defense. The three quarterbacks walked to the lift. In the center of the field stood seven Sklorno receivers dressed in orange practice jerseys. Their orange leg armor was thin and light so as not to hamper their speed. For the upper body, they wore a black metal mesh armor that protected but also allowed for the full range of motion needed by the boneless tentacles and the flexible eye stalks. The black helmet with the orange patch and white stripes looked like a small bowling ball, with four finger holes on top, one for each armored eye stalk, and a gap in front that let their raspers hang free. Even before the lift reached the field, the Scalorno looked up at the oncoming humans and began to visibly tremble. Their raspers rolled out, almost to the ground, and each of them began to shout various Sklorno words, all of which sounded like gibberish. What's their problem? Quentin asked. They afraid of coach or something? Pine shook his head, and Yitzhak laughed. Not exactly, Yitzhak said. The righteous brother Pine here is somewhat of a religious figure in the Sklorno culture. Religious? What, like he's a preacher or something? Yitzhak laughed louder. <laughs> not, not exactly. Oh, give it a rest, Pine said, his blue-skinned face turning a strange shade of purple. Yitzhak put his hand to his chest, his expression that of mock pain. Oh, forgive me, great one. Don't strike me down with your godly quarterback powers. Quentin looked back to the Sklorno receivers. The closer the humans got, the more the Sklorno shook. It reminded him of the truly devout back home during noonday prayers, how they would shudder and shake, their blue robes rustling with sudden movements, oftentimes speaking in tongues, their eyes rolling back into their heads. As a child, such behavior had scared the crap out of him. When he grew older, he learned that those people were supposedly in deep communion with the High One. The similarities clicked home. They worship pine? You mean like a god or something? Yitzhak nodded. Something like that. As a human, it's kind of difficult to understand. But from what we hear, there are at least 32 confirmed houses of worship dedicated to the great pine spread throughout Sklorno space. Cut it out, Pine said. It's not like I encourage this. There's actually a statue of the great and glorious pine on the Sklorno's home planet. How tall is that again, Pine? A hundred feet or so? Get lost, Yitzhak. Why do they worship him? Quentin asked. Yitzhak shrugged. Something about the quarterback position, that and great coaches, strikes a chord with their culture. Scalorno aren't as independent as humans. They tend to blindly follow their leaders. Coaches and quarterbacks get the most attention in football, and the Scalorno are insane football fans. The nature of the game and their culture just kind of combine. Who knows, Quentin? You put together a couple of good seasons, and there might be a church or two in your name. Quentin felt his own face turning red. The idea of someone worshiping him, not as fan to player, but as subject to God, made him deeply uncomfortable. He felt sacrilegious just thinking about it. 
they reach midfield. Quentin heard the burble of a small anti-grav engine, and he looked up to see Hokor flying toward them in a hover cart, the kind people use to move around a golf course. What the hell is that? Coach can't walk all of a sudden? Pine laughed. Hokor likes to watch from above, you know, get a full view of the field, but he wants to come down to offer his own special brand of encouragement. The hover cart slowed and floated about ten feet off the field. I hate that damn cart, Itzhak said quietly. Just wait, you'll see. He's got a loudspeaker in it and everything. As if on cue, Hokor's amplified voice bellowed across the field. Okay, that's enough of that crap, the yellow-furred coach said. You will seize this shivering thing immediately. As a unit, the Sklorno instantly stopped shaking, raspers quickly rolling back up under their chin plates. They stood as still as they could, but kept twitching, little chirps escaping them every few seconds. That's better, Hokor said. Pine, line them up and run hook routes. They all stood on the 50-yard line, the eight Sklorno 15 yards to the right of the human quarterbacks. It surprised Quinn that he immediately recognized Denver and Milford. He'd always thought all Sklorno looked alike, but Denver had more red in her eye stalks, and Milford's oily head of hair seemed to be thicker and longer than any of the others. If it weren't for the jersey names and numbers, however, he wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between Scarborough, Haywick, Richfield, Mesquitic, and the other Kraken receivers. Pine grabbed a ball from the rack and squatted, just as he'd done in the VR practice field. The first Sklorno bent down into that race's strange starting stance. Legs folded up like a grasshopper tail sticking straight back to balance the forward-leaning body. The back of her jersey read, Haywick. Pine took a three-step drop, planted, and fired. Far too high. In the millisecond after the ball left Pine's hand, Quentin figured it would sail 40 yards downfield. But Haywick was already 15 yards downfield and turning. She didn't just stop and turn like a human receiver would do in a hook route. She stopped, turned, and jumped. Quentin's jaw dropped as Haywick sprang 10 feet into the air like a 280-pound flea. The ball hit her square in the numbers. She landed and turned in the same motion, sprinting all the way to the end zone before stopping. Quentin stared, barely able to believe what he'd seen. Such speed. Pine and Yitzhak hadn't been screwing with him in the VR room. Sklorno really were that fast. And that leap. It was one thing to see it on the net, quite another to see it in person. Yitzhak took the next ball. The next Sklorno's jersey read, Mesquitic. Hot, hot! Yitzhak dropped back three steps and fired, again seemingly far too high. Mesquitic sprang high, caught the ball, landed, and streaked down the field. Quentin was still staring at the streaking Sklorno receiver when Pine poked him in the rib pads. You're up, boy. Quentin grabbed the next ball from the rack and squatted down just behind the 50. He looked to his right. Scarborough looked back at him, awaiting his signal. Hut, hut! Quentin drove backward three steps and planted. He started to throw but hesitated a half second because Scarborough was still a good eight yards from hooking up the route. In less time than it took to blink, Scarborough was there, turning, leaping, and looking for the ball. Quentin threw as quickly as he could, but it was too late. Scarborough had hit the ground by the time the throw reached her. 
It sailed far over her head. Birds! What the hell was that? Quentin blushed. Get used to the timing, Barnes. With squirrel receivers, passing is a three-dimensional game. You're not in the bush leagues anymore. Practice continued for another hour. Quentin struggled with the Sklerno's blinding speed and leaping ability, but made significant progress pass after pass. He had some trouble with Mazquitic, who dropped two of his passes, but he clicked well with the other receivers, particularly Denver. Only in the final five minutes did Hokor open it up for long patterns. Pine dropped back seven steps and fired a 55-yard strike to Haywick. The Sklorno receivers let out a series of rapid clicking noises. What's that sound they're making? Quentin asked Yitzhak. That's the Scalorno equivalent to ooh and ah, Yitzhak said. The ladies love the long ball. Yitzhak threw next, hitting a 45-yard streak to Miss Quiddick. The receivers let out clicks, but they weren't as loud as they had been for Pines Pass. Quentin smiled as he grabbed the ball and squatted down for his rep. Neither of these guys could match his arm strength, not even the once great Donald Pine. Scarborough lined up to his right. Quentin barked out a hut hut! He dropped back the prescribed seven steps and kept going, finally setting up a good 15 yards from where he'd snapped the ball. He watched Scarborough the whole way, his mind now somewhat accustomed to the receiver's 3.2 40-yard dash speed. Quentin unleashed the ball. The Sklorno's click started immediately as the ball arced through the air like a laser-guided bomb. Scarborough angled under it and caught it in stride at the back edge of the end zone. The Sklornos not only clicked and chirped louder than ever, they started jumping up and down and hugging each other. Raspers lulled and spit flew everywhere. Damn, Pine said, shaking his head. That was 75 yards in the air, Yitzhak said, and right on the money. Quentin smiled, his hands petting out a quick bada-bap on his stomach as he waited for accolades from his new coach. Silence! Hokor shouted at the Sklorno. The anger in his voice seemed to terrify them. They huddled together, shaking and twitching in a mass of fear. Hokor turned to Quentin. What was that? A touchdown, Quentin said. I know that. What was that drop? Quentin shrugged. Just wanted to show you what I can do, coach. And what you can do is drop that 15 yards? What are you, a punter? Quentin felt his face flushing red once again. Well, no, coach. I, I just wanted to show you how deep I could throw it. Well, if you like to show off so much, how about showing me how far you can run? Take 10 laps around the field. He'll finish up the reps without you. Quentin blinked, his mind suddenly registering the coach's words. Finish up. Without me? I said take 10 laps, Hokor said. Now move! Pine grabbed a ball and squatted down for the next rep, while Denver crouched in readiness for her turn. Pine dropped back, Denver sprinted, and everyone seemed to ignore Quentin. Coach Graber had never singled him out like that. Quentin's face felt hot. Anger swirled in his chest as he trotted to the edge of the field and started his first lap. You have been listening to The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League Series. 
Produced by Ariat Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.